you'll come read for us. Uh, as Mark said, my name is Eli. Um, our scripture reading today comes from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The grass withers and the flower fades. Thank you, uh, Eli. As always, it's just such a privilege to to be here and to worship uh, with you. Uh, On Friday, I returned from something uh, called General Assembly that uh, met in Memphis. If you're not familiar, General Assembly is the annual gathering of the leadership of the churches in our denomination. And we gather for business, but as you could imagine, there's a lot of connections with the groups of people that attend, and so there's a rekindling of relationships and building of relationships. And at General Assembly, it's quite common to see uh, families there, particularly families with young children. And of course, these young children are uh, away from the normal rhythms of their daily life. They're away from home, they're staying in a hotel room, they're eating out, they're engaged in activities that are very different from the activities that they would typically engage in if they were at home. And every now and then you see a child with their parent or parents that's lost it. They're kind of at the end of their rope. They scream, they're acting out, they're crying. And what we say is they're having a temper tantrum. And if you're a parent, every parent has been there. And when I saw it this week, and I didn't see it that much, but when I saw it, I truly felt sorry for that parent who was trying to bring comfort to that child. Uh, The NIH, the National Institutes of Health, actually clinically defines temper tantrums. And they they define it as this, an unpleasant or disruptive behavior or emotional outburst. And then they go on to say they often occur in response to unmet needs or desires. Tantrums are more likely to occur in younger children or others who cannot express their needs or control their emotions uh, when they are frustrated. I think that definition of temper tantrum helps us understand the opening verses of our text this morning, Psalm 2. Listen again uh, to the words of the uh, uh, first two verses here. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves 
and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. What we can say here is that these verses are describing a temper tantrum. There is something these nations and kings want that they don't have, and hence they are raging. What do they want? Well, let's look at their own words from verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. See, they want to be free from God's rule, which they describe as bonds and cords that restrain them. Psalm 2 describes something very specific, something very important for us to understand about ourselves as human beings. We are fundamentally rebellious. And theologians wrap this up in a package that they describe as original sin. I would say this, uh, the doctrine of original sin has never been uh, in vogue in popular culture, but it's particularly offensive, I believe, in today's cultural moment. See, we don't want to believe that our minds and our bodies are inherently geared to work against our best interests. We want to start from the assumption that what I want for myself is basically a good thing. And a God who rules, by definition then, is therefore offensive because we lose our autonomy, we lose our freedom, we lose our agency. Practically, in our cultural moment, it means that we, and this comes into our circles as well as believers, begin to doubt that God has the right to define my story. In fact, this uh, permeates much of modern mental health, which states that I will be who I want to be. And then the corollary, if you don't agree with me, you're hurting me, and therefore I will separate myself from you. But the psalmist tells us that God laughs, look at verse 4, at those who want to define their story apart from the rule of God. Now let's be careful here. God is not laughing because he's unsympathetic or he's mean. He's laughing because from a cosmic perspective, and that's what this psalm is coming from, this posture and behavior is absurd. See, the equivalent would be for us to look at that child who's kicking and screaming and lashing out against their parent, completely unaware that that parent that they're lashing out against is in full control of all that is going on around them. The psalmist here is describing the one story that defines all our stories. In the heavens, the Lord God is not struggling to achieve the upper hand against those who are challenging him. He's not fighting for control. He's laughing. The Lord God reigns over all. All this rage, all this turmoil, all these schemes of the kings of earth, the only thing that the Lord can do is laugh at this because he is in complete and total control. However, the earthly kings have failed to lead their people in right plans, right attitudes, right actions. And this is a problem that God himself must resolve. Therefore, the Lord God reveals to these earthly kings his own plan and course of action. The Lord God will establish a king of his own ruling, of his own choice to rule over his creation. 
See, Psalm 2 is first and foremost a declaration that the story of the Lord God in the heavens is the master story that controls and defines all other story within his creation. So all other stories either align with the story or in vain, they challenge the story. There are no neutral stories. There's no middle ground. So, As we look at the psalm as a whole, this is what it's telling us. When it comes to God's rule, either we rage against it or we find refuge in it. Okay, let me say that again. That's the core of the psalm. Either we rage against it or we find refuge in it. The psalm makes no room for any type of middle ground. Interestingly, this is the heart and soul of Israelite belief, and hence the, um, our Christian belief. God has no challengers, and this God who has no challengers, he is on our side. Or, I think better stated, we are on his side. Uh, this essential and central belief is captured in Deuteronomy 6 in the Shema, one of the most uh, 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 reflected upon creeds within the Old Testament where we read this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Again, he's our God, no challengers. Now, how are we to understand the rage described here in Psalm 2? What does it teach us about our rebellion? First, either behind it or even encouraging it are the kings of the earth. Instead of leading their people in the worship of this one true God, the kings have led their people in the other direction. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, the king embodied the ideals of the society. Whatever they were meant to be as human beings, or we were meant to be as human beings, kings were supposed to be that perfect ideal of that. Second, the tragic nature of our rebellion is a spiral downward. There is no king willing to lead us out of our rebellion. And in fact, these earthly kings are doubling down and setting themselves and their people on a course of continued rebellion. See, our situation in our rebellion necessarily goes from bad to worse. But the Lord God, in his great mercy and kindness towards us, sends his own king. We see that in verse 6, and this is God himself speaking. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, Zion was this place where heaven and earth touched one another. And this is where God will establish a king in his own image and after his own heart. This king will be a true son. He is the anointed one. He will be a perfect picture of what God's earthly king should look like. And what does this king do? He tells God's story to the nations. So the king that God installs says this, I will tell of the decree. In other words, things that were not previously revealed, I'm now going to reveal to you. And this is the mercy of God. He won't abandon the nations to their temper tantrums. He will take these nations, and as it says here, he will make them part of his own heritage. In other words... The promise here is that the rebellious nations will become a part of God's own family. And this will happen through this king. How? 
Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Uh, but, but these words, we have to understand, actually show us God's mercy in action. See, the rebellious human heart is so strong that nothing but obliterating it has to happen if we're to become part of God's family. That God's king has come to break us from our destructive temper tantrums so that we can experience a life aligned with God's story. Okay, that's Psalm 2. So the question addressed to the kings of earth becomes the question that I think we have to ask one another. How are you and I going to respond to the reign of Lord God's king, his anointed one? First of all, do we share the psalmist's view of the reign of God's king? Do we believe that God's king reigns over all and that there are no serious contenders to his reign? Or do we give ourselves over to the false kings who can't deliver on what they promise? And I just listed a few here. Money, power, sex, even chance. God's king reigns, but the false king of financial security is pretty enticing. And this king captures a good portion of my attention and energy. God's king reigns, but the false king of sex tells me biblical prescriptions for sexual purity just simply don't apply to our society anymore. Or that it's okay to have a sexual relationship outside the context of the marriage between a man and a woman. God's king reigns, but the false king of power tells me that it's probably always a good thing to have the upper hand in a relationship. God, God's king reigns, but the false king of chance just might mess something up, some of God's well-intentioned plans, so I might just need to take things into my own hands. See, Psalm 2 is inviting us to consider what are, in our rebellion, what false kings are we pursuing? Second, as we think about how we respond to God's reign, we need to examine the ways that rage might be at work in our lives. For some of us, that rage might be on the surface. We are exactly like that child that just loses control. Everybody sees it. It's pretty visible. Everybody finds themselves in an awkward situation trying to see what the parent's going to do, what the child's going to do, what are other people going to do or looking at the situation. Um... You're an angry person. You demand much out, of other, much out of others, and you find it hard to look past their faults. The slightest thing sets you off. See, that, that fits you well, the picture of uh, a child throwing a tantrum. Now, for some of us, and I actually think most of us, because most of us like to kind of look good around others, um, rage works at a different level, but it's still rage. We wouldn't describe ourselves as full of rage, but it's deep at work within our hearts. And I, I want to explain this by way of illustration. Um, years ago, when my boys were much younger, I was in the kitchen doing something, and one of them came downstairs from playing video games, and he comes up to me and goes, Dad, Dad, I made another player rage quit. I was like, rage quit. Well, that's an interesting word. So um, I, I, 
I had never heard the expression rage quit. I could imagine what it was, but again, since I had my phone, I, I Googled it, and um, I got this definition, to stop playing a game out of anger towards an event that transpired within the game. Huh. I think that describes many of us. See, we're, we're not, we're not going to go throw that temper tantrum. That's too obvious. Do you know what we do? We rage quit. Something happens. <clears throat> A difficult event transpires in our lives, and we get angry. And instead of throwing a temper tantrum, we throw in the towel. As a pastor, I've seen this happen time and time again. It's not that they vocalize their rage towards God. I've seen people just walk away because life did not work out the way they thought God had promised them it would work out. And that's it. I'm out. Rage quitting happens as God's story begins to shape our lives in such a way that some of the changes that have to be made cut to the core of who we think we are. God, you, you can work on these things, but if you come here, too much, too much. I need these things around me. If you take them away, too much. I'm out. This isn't the way I want it to be. We don't want to give up our stories Sadly, even though they often make us incredibly miserable, we see that God's story will take us to these places we don't want to go. We're scared, we're angry, we're hurt, we're dismayed. And we say, that's it, that's it, I'm done. And we rage quit. See, Psalm 2 is showing us the way beyond temper tantrums and rage quit. God's story is not out to get us. It's the opposite. God's story is our only hope. As the psalm ends with these words, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The blessed life, or words that we would use today, the good life is resting in the protection of God's king. So what I'd like to do as we uh, bring this to a close, I'd like to turn our attention to how do we apply the truths of Psalm 2 to our lives in a very practical way. Now, here's where we might be tempted to go to verse 12 and read this. Kiss the Son. Submit. That's, I mean, we have an intuitive idea of what kiss the Son means. It means to submit to him. And uh, interestingly, Psalmist goes on to say, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. At this point, we might be able to say, well, just kiss the sun. You know, just submit ourselves. That's the solution. However, that fails to take into account the problem that was already established by the psalmist here which is this, we're rebellious people. It's in our nature. What's the last thing that that child who's having a temper tantrum wants to do? Whether it's outward or inward. It's like, come on, mom, come on, dad, I want to give you a kiss. Are you kidding? What's the child doing? Even if they're, the, the parent is trying to restrain them, the child's looking away. How do we resolve that? 
Well, I think we have to take a step back and we have to look and understand that Psalm 2 was written to instruct the kings of ancient Israel about how the Lord God was at work in this world. See, this is a royal psalm, and like all royal psalms, Psalm 2 not only instructs the king, but the psalm is a celebration of that one great king who is to come. Then the question is, okay, if it's not only instruction, but celebration and anticipation, how do I know that we have the right king? Answers found, take a look in verse 7, where the God's king is speaking. And he says this, I will tell of the decree. In other words, I'm the one revealing to you the things of God's plan. And the Lord said to me, me being the Lord's king, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2, like all royal psalms, have to be understood primarily as pointing us to Jesus. At Jesus' baptism, there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus' transfiguration, the disciples hear a voice from above that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And in good Old Testament fashion, there are two confirmations to the truth. Jesus is the son spoken of in Psalm 2. The apostles clearly understood this very early on. Even in Acts chapter 2, Paul explicitly links the events going on in their lives with Psalm 2. These events surrounding Jesus, Peter's proclamation of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And finally, in the most extensive discussion of Jesus has the fulfillment of Psalm 2, we have the letter to the Hebrews. See, Jesus is the one that Psalm 2 is describing. There's no doubt about it, and the apostles confirm it. So let's go back to General Assembly and that child who throws a temper tantrum. What goes on? Assuming the parent is engaging in reasonable parenting techniques, what ends up happening is the child wears themselves out with that parent or parents providing a safe and appropriate, a protective environment for that to happen. Right? We're told to, to make sure they can't harm themselves. There's no arguing with them at this point. You're just going to hold them. You're going to walk them to a place where they don't embarrass themselves further, where they can work through whatever is going on, whatever they can't put words to. That describes us and King Jesus. See, we following the examples of the kings of the earth throw our temper tantrums, and rage against God himself. See, that's our nature. So what's the solution to our rage and rebellion? Well, it's not kiss the sun. That that happens a bit later. It's this. Jesus holds on to us like a parent holding on to a child who's having a temper tantrum. Here's the wonderful thing. God, Jesus will not abandon us in the midst of our tantrums. As a parent, what's the thing that you want to do when your child is out of control in public? It's like, that's that's probably somebody else's child. You know, you want to walk away. 
It's embarrassing. It's like, I don't want to be seen with this child. How are people going to judge me as a parent? But Jesus holds on to us. And why? Because like earthly children belong to their parents, we belong to Jesus. And he's not going to let go of us even as we throw a tantrum. He is the one who is there when we've worn ourselves out. He's not ashamed of us when we've made a scene, and he will not walk away. See, when we wear ourselves out, Jesus picks us up, holds us in his arms, and reassures us that we are loved. And what happens there? What does the child do? Not fully understanding the tantrum that they had, they just hug their parent, and guess what? They give him a kiss in response. See, the kiss isn't the thing that activated all this. The kiss is a response to all the things that have already been done as Jesus breaks our rebellious nature. Jesus, as he holds us, does not leave us in our rebellion. And therefore, in him, we find refuge. See, life is a struggle. There are things out there that are going on in our lives that we can't give words to. That's what we always used to say when our child came in and he's like, "Ah, put words to it. And guess what? There's some things that run so deep we can't put words to it. And we want to follow these false kings who offer us a bad story and give us some words. But I'd like to leave you this morning with the question that Psalm 2 is asking. And it's this. Do we see God as the one we struggle against or the one who provides us with protection in the midst of the struggle? That's the question. See, do we see God as the one we struggle against or the one who provides us with protection in the midst of the struggle. Today we celebrate Father's Day. A good father, the fundamental thing he does is protect his family. And that's exactly what our Heavenly Father has done in sending his son Jesus. In Jesus, we have refuge and a blessed life. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of your son, the one who embraces us, When we are unlovely and unlovable, we thank you that he breaks our rebellious heart and he brings us to the place where we can kiss him in appreciation of all that he's done for us. Lord, help us to never understand that it's our efforts that have resolved the rebellion, but rather the deep and abiding love that Jesus has for us. And now we ask that you continue to strengthen this understanding of that love as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we come now to the Lord's table where the chaos and strife of the world is answered by the finished work of